strangers from a distant lands, friends of old, you have been summoned here to listen to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. The Lord of the Rings trilogy stands upon the brink of its 20-year anniversary. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. We must hold this course west of the Misty Mountains for 40 days. If our luck holds, the gap of Rowan will still be open to us. From there, our road turns east to Mordor. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Ring Goes South, our 13th episode on 2001's The Fellowship of the Ring from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The Fellowship heads south from Rivendell, ending up at the doorstep of Moria. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. Reminder for patreon.com slash bomb, we are just 15 patrons away from unlocking bonus episodes on the Fellowship of the Ring, focusing on the book-only scenes and the extended edition scenes. Since today's recap will take us to the doors of Durin and the speak-friend riddle, it seems like a good time to lay down the broader pillars of language in Middle-earth. Tolkien, as we all know, was a linguist, and his love of language is something we've included in our coverage up to this point. But a general overview on the languages may allow us to dive deeper into some of Tolkien's wordplay and taxonomy later on in the series. It's important to remember that there are multiple avenues for discussing the words and languages of Middle-earth, their relation to our real world and how Tolkien derives the languages, and then their in-universe history and evolution. We are going to go over the languages that are more directly relevant to the story we're dissecting on this pod, but the lineage of languages in Middle-earth could be a whole series unto itself. So just a note to begin with. In linguistics, there are two somewhat main approaches, descriptivism and prescriptivism. Prescriptivism argues that the job of the linguist is to decide how language should be used, and descriptivism argues that language should describe how language is actually used. I don't want to give undue credence to prescriptivism by pretending that it is in any way a serious contender in the world of academic linguistics, but a lot of stodgy, douchey lay linguists, grammar Nazis, if you will, uh, will pretend that prescriptivism is a valid and worthwhile approach. I want to start this by saying, fuck those guys, they're retrograde morons. Why do I bring this up? Well, because I'm about to hit you with a lot of new information about various constructed languages, conlangs for short. And I don't want you thinking your ability or inability to quote-unquote properly pronounce these various words should preclude you from talking about or enjoying these languages. In fact, I firmly believe that um, hearing people mispronounce these made-up words is actually far more interesting in most cases than hearing them pronounce it correctly. Why? Well, for the reasons I began to outline in our discussion of the name of the words of Brayden. How you instinctively pronounce certain syllables is actually really revealing of your background. For example, I was raised in French-speaking countries, so the word Breeden to me evokes the French word for noise. To my partner, whose first spoken language was German, the word is obviously pronounced like the word brute. So all this to say, don't let the pronunciation scare you off. Now, into the meat of the discussion. The major constructed languages of the legendarium. Tolkien was, as Manu mentioned, a linguist and philologist by trade. 
crafting these languages in many ways overshadowed his actual academic output. And so it would be immensely difficult to try and squeeze all of the necessary history and context to discuss these comprehensively into a short podcast segment. But I want to preface all of this by saying that many, many of these constructed languages bear resemblance to modern languages like Finnish, Hebrew, and the various Celtic languages. Though not, I should note, Gaelic, which Tolkien especially hated. There is a wide and rich contextual background for these languages, and I encourage anyone interested to spend some time digging through them. It is lots of fun. All that said, we're going to quickly go through six of the major languages with a brief pit stop at one of the more interesting dialects. These languages are Quenya, Sindarin, Westron, or the Common Tongue, the Rohir language, Khazdul, the Black Speech of Mordor, and the Hobbitish dialect of Westron. These encompass only some of the many, many languages and dialects Tolkien constructed. Other major ones include Adenaic, the lay language of Numenor, or Valoran, the language of the Valar, just to give you a sense of the scale and scope of the Legendarium's linguistic landscape. I'm going to group the languages roughly by their racial connections, and we'll begin with the Elvish languages, which are also, not coincidentally, the foreign languages we hear the most in the films. So, the first language we'll discuss is the ancient Elvish language of Quenya. Inspired by Finnish, and one of Tolkien's favorite, most intricate, and earliest conlangs, Quenya is the language of the High Elves who dwelt in Valinor. By the Third Age of Middle-earth and the start of our story, Quenya had been largely ossified as a language of scholars, and more akin to Latin than, say, French or Mandarin. Though developed by and for elves, it did disseminate, mostly via the Numenorians, to the kingdoms of man, and it is in this context that we get some of my favorite examples of it in the films. Take, for example, this beautiful choral arrangement. So that is not Tolkien-penned Quenya. It was a translation done for the films, but it is an excellent example of these films taking the languages quite seriously and doing some remarkable work with them. The choir is singing a Quenya translation of Boromir's Lament, which we introduced you to in our episode, The Horn of Gondor. Irello and Dorena Utulian Sinome Maruvin are Hildinyar Tan Ambar Meta. That is Elendil's oath, and was in fact written by Tolkien. 
Upon arriving at the shores of Middle-earth, after guiding the Numenorean faithful across the sundering seas, fleeing the corrupted isle of Western S, Elendil proclaimed, Out of the great sea to Middle-earth I am, I am come. In this place will I abide, and my heirs unto the ending of the world. We hear those words again in the films, sung by Aragorn at his coronation at the second of the five endings of Return of the King. <laughs> Our next language is Sindarin, and it is effectively the lay language of the elves, but don't let that fool you into thinking there's any universality to it. Legolas, Aragorn, and Boromir all spoke Sindarin from birth, but the divergences between the various dialects mean that their manner of speaking, the way they pronounced words, their word choice and sentence constructions, their idioms, etc., could have been wildly different. In fact, Tolkien explains that because of the elves' immortality, the changes to the Sindarin they used occurred far, far more slowly than the changes to the Sindarin used by the men, but more on that later. We hear Sindarin throughout the films, or at least an excellently constructed Neo-Sindarin, made specially by David I. Sallow for the films. Sallow worked the Herculean task of expanding Sindarin from the bits and pieces crafted by Tolkien into a largely functional language that could be adapted by the screenwriters for ongoing dialogue, especially between Aragorn and Arwen and Aragorn and Legolas. The Sindarin we're going to play for you, however, is the Sindarin that also exists in the books. <laughs> That's not to downplay the excellent work that Sallow did, it's just more in the theme of this podcast. We couldn't do a discussion of the languages of the Lord of the Rings without including this, one of the most famous and dramatic language jokes in either the books or films. Beyond just being a clever riddle, Speak, Friend, and Enter is actually a very fun and interesting commentary on the nature of language and translation. Gandalf, when presented with what is by all accounts an immense and culturally weighty bit of architecture, translates the text written upon it under the assumption that the words must be equally immense and weighty. So the words above the door, and in Duran Aran Moria, Pero Melon Amino, Im Narvi Han Echant, Kelobrimbor O Eregian Telfanti Thuyuhin, Gandalf thus translates as The Doors of Duran, Lord of Moria, Speak, Friend, and Enter. I, Narvi, made them, Kelobrimbor of Holland, do these signs. Speak, Friend, and Enter, then, reflects the formality of the context. But the Sindarin word Ped, conjugated here as Pedo, has two meanings, one poetic and formal, the other quotidian and casual. And it is in fact upon the casual definition of the word that the answer to the, this riddle hinges. These sorts of cutesy language jokes are ever-present in the text. The famous no man may hinder me, no living man may I, man am I example is another excellent one. The next little bit of syndrome that we're going to talk about is one of my favorites, which is Elbereth Githoniel. Beyond just excellent moments for banter, Sindarin is also useful as a poetic and spiritual language, and has a really brilliant entry into the films in a scene in the extended edition when Sam and Frodo watch elves passing through the woods on their way to the Grey Havens. Albereth Gilthoniel, 
Sullivan Pena Miriel, Omenel Algar Elenath, Gilthoniel A. Albareth. Love it. This song, which has multiple verses in the book, including a beautiful verse sung by Sam in Shelob's lair as he searches desperately for Frodo, is actually one of the longest bits of Sindarin we have. It praises Elbreth, better known as Varda, one of the demigods who dwell in Valinor. The verse Manu just did for us translates as, O Elbreth, star kindler, white glittering slants down, sparkling like jewels, from the firmament the glory of the star host. To remote distance, far having gazed, from the tree-tangled middle lands, then you lost to thee I will chant, on this side of ocean, here on this side of the great ocean. Now, on to the Manish languages. And again, back to Sindarin. The movie elides the fact that Sindarin is also a Manish language, which is fine, I guess. But the nobility of Gondor and pretty much all of those of Numenorean descent speak Sindarin as their native tongue. It's actually a pretty significant part of their identity. In fact, there are a lot of Manish internal politics involved with the use or misuse of Sindarin, and it's pretty key to who they are as a people. Nevertheless, it's not shown in the movie, which, again, is fine, I guess. So I won't spend too much time talking about it. At least not now. Maybe a little later. Nevertheless, Sindarin was the native tongue of the nobility of Gondor, meaning that Aragorn and Legolas shit-talking Boromir at the Council of Elrond? Yeah, that's Boromir's equivalent of the Seinfeld episode where Elaine brings Frank Costanza to translate her manicurist. Just saying. Okay, Westron, the common tongue. This is the big one. Despite being the most underdeveloped, so to speak, of all of Tolkien's languages— and why is it so underdeveloped despite being the single most important language in The Lord of the Rings? Well, because it's translated as English in both the books and films. Actually, or so saith the professor, Westron was a Creole derivative language of Adenaic, the aforementioned language of Numenor. It became the lingua franca haha, um, of the Westlands of Middle-earth, and is the language in which the vast majority of the book and film is conducted. All throughout the books, it is straight up English, and in the movies, obviously, it is English. So if you are hearing the term Westron or the common tongue for the first time and wondering where the hell that shows up, never fear, it is literally everywhere. The next language we're going to chat briefly about is the Rohir language, um, which is fascinating to me for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is because it's basically a non-existent language within the Legendarium. It's shown in the books as Old English or Anglo-Saxon English, and it's meant to represent, uh, which is meant to represent its relationship to the common tongue, as in it's kind of an antecedent to the common tongue, the modern common tongue. But beyond that, there's actually not really a huge amount that Tolkien wrote about it. We don't even know what it was actually called. You'll hear me referring to it as the Rohir language, but it is important to note that the term Rohan and the word Rohirrim and all its derivative descriptors, are actually Gondorim terms for the land and the people of Rohan. The Rohirrim refer to themselves as the Orlingus, and to the land they inhabit as the Rittermark, or the Mark for short. So while I'll, I'll call it the Rohir language, that's just a matter of convenience and bias on my half, and not at all the consensus take. Other uglier names for the language include Rohanese, um, as used once or twice by Chris Tolkien, um, though I will literally beg you to never use that term because it is so fucking ugly. Please God, do not do it. I hate it. With that, we will briefly conclude our 
Manish languages and go on to something quite exciting, which is the dwarf language. And the dwarf language is Kazdul. Baruch Kazad. Kazad I Manu. Wait, is that Manu? <laughs> that is why I picked this one. <laughs> um, so Kazdul basically doesn't exist in the films, which is, I think, actually a, a missed opportunity because it is like quite um, a fun language to talk about in here. Um, I'm going to be quite sparing, however, in my discussion of this language because we have two more episodes, roughly, where we'll deal with the Duaro language and cultures, um, and more importantly, the slightly worrying racial context underlying them. That said, Kuzdol is the language of the dwarfs and was inspired by Hebrew. We'll get back to that later and in more depth and with more seriousness. The Duaro language, however, is fascinating because it is a secret language. In the Third Age, during the events of the Lord of the Rings, the dwarves of Middle-earth learned Westron primarily and taught Khazdul to their children largely as a matter of cultural preservation. The Khazdul language remained largely unchanged since its creation by the Valaule, and that is, again, a story that we'll get into in greater detail in the coming episodes. And now, on to the very spooky side of language and the black speech of Mordor. Ashnaz Dubartuluk, Ashnaz Gimbatuluk, Ashnaz Traktuluk. I love it. Brilliant. Cool. So pinning down the inspiration for the black speech of Mordor is a super tricky subject. um, And I cannot tell you how many pages and pages of um, academic journals have been dedicated to doing this. However, some Tolkien scholars have argued that it was inspired by the ancient Mesopotamian language, Hurrian. (laughs) Make of that what you will. We talked an episode ago... I think, about Sauron being a deeply clever and innovative fellow, and the Black Speech is, in many ways, a testament to that. It's a language he created entirely. Like, honestly, what kind of fucked up guy would create a language for fun? Well, weirdo. <laughs> Anyways, the Black Speech was created during the grimmer, shittier years of the Second Age, when Har- Sauron held some dominion over Middle-earth. It was created to be an efficient way for the servants of Mordor to converse with one another, and was based off the Valarian language in an attempt to mock and defile the creations of the Valar. A spite language. Gotta love it. And now, very briefly, and mostly just for the fun shock value, humor value, I guess, and the Hobbitish dialect of Westron. And so, as I said, it's just a dialect, it's not its own uh, divergent language, um, and it's actually close enough to the Rohiric language that there is some mutual intelligibility, um, although that is not really dealt with in much detail in the books. It's mostly done through a couple um, passing comments. Um, there's really not a huge amount of the books or the films that deals with Hobbitish, so I don't want to spend an enormous amount of time on it, except to share something that I love a lot, which is the real names of the Hobbits. So... Brace yourselves. Frodo Baggins' real name <laughs> is Mora Labinki. 
<laughs> the start of his name, Mar, means wise in Westron. So in quote-unquote translating the story of Lord of the Rings, Tolkien took the Germanic word element Frode, which basically means the same thing, to create Frodo. Exciting. Um, Bilbo then, I guess quite aptly, is Bilba <laughs> Binky. <laughs> Um, and Sam has the most badass real name of all time. It is Banazir Galbasi. <laughs> I love it. Um, Sam's name is also fun because in one of the longer bits of written Sindarin we have, which is Aragorn's letter from the early Fourth Age announcing his royal visit to the Shire, he translates Sam's name to the Sindarin word perhail, which means half-wise, um, which is what uh, Sam's name means in English. And Aragorn goes on to make the fun joke, Perhel Iseni Parnethal Esehar Ayan, or Halfwise, who should rather be called Fullwise. Sweet. Um, and then P- Pippin's name <laughs> is Razanir Tuk, um, which is just great. I love it. It's like exactly the level of like hard as nails name uh, that Pippin deserves. Um, and Mary's name is quite exciting and funny to me. Um, his name is uh, Calimac uh, Brandagamba, <laughs> um, but Calimac, um, which for the first like probably 10 million times I read it, um, scanned to me as Calmac, which is a Caledonian Mac brain here in uh, Scotland that is like a fairy company. And I really just thought that like Tolkien was doing free advertising for a company that didn't exist yet. So lots of fun there. Um, and on that like weirdly niche inside joke-ish uh, note, um, we're now going to end our discussion of the languages of Middle Earth. And um, thank you for bearing with me through that. Um, and if you have any questions at all about these languages, I would seriously love to either answer them or do a whole bunch of research to later answer them for you. So please like, do come past me on Twitter. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. And just to add on to that, uh, feel free to send us emails or tweets that we could answer on the air or leave a comment on the Patreon. Uh, we're happy to interact more with you guys. And I feel like the languages is a great, almost meta way to interact more with our listeners. So please do that. Fellowship of the Ring sets out from Rivendell. The course is south, several weeks along the western, or windward, side of the Misty Mountains. They make for the Gap of Rohan, and from there east to the Black Lands of Mordor. I hate to keep referring to every sequence in this film as iconic, but I relent, for lack of a better word. A shot of our party leaving Rivendell suddenly gives way to sweeping landscape shots, helicopter camps circling around the Fellowship, bounding over hills, skirting ruins, and moving with purpose. All of this is set to that main Fellowship theme, fully realized in the previous episode and now repurposed as a march. 
The theme really takes hold when the camera zooms in to give us a shot of all nine of our heroes passing between some boulders. Sorry, all ten of our heroes, as we have Build a Pony along for this leg of the journey. I can still remember the first time I saw this scene. In a Burger King commercial, as the fast food chain had a tie-in promotion where you could collect miniature figures of the Fellowship characters. A long journey will require rest, however, and we see the group take refuge amongst some rocks not far from the mountains. The good and noble Boromir teaches some of our less martial lads, namely Merry and Pippin, how to sword fight. Not only will this be useful for the adventure, but a wee bit of foreshadowing of Boromir risking his life to protect these two hobbits. Here we get to see Boromir, Merry, and Pippin act mirthfully with words of encouragement and laughter as the halflings tackle the big man to the ground. Very wholesome. Boromir, Middle-earth's number one dad. All the while, Aragon is just getting high on his pipe. Deadbeat dad vibes. Shake my head. Elsewhile, Gimli has some travel tips for Gandalf. They seem to be going the long way around. Why not pass through the mines of Moria? Gimli knows a guy. Balin, who would throw the most kick-ass party if they crashed for a night. Gandalf nixes the plan, though. Last time he partied in Moria, he was mad hungover. Or something like that. A black shape on the wind appears in the distance, which, catch- which catches Legolas's eye, but Gimli dim- dismisses it as a puff of cloud. Boromir is a little less sure. It's moving with great speed against the wind, and Legolas's elf eyes are able to pick it up. Crabane from Dunland. So crows, or ravens, or some kind of intelligent blackbird associated with evil, don't quote me on that. The camera zooms out a bit as we get to watch the party hide. They put out their fires and all disappear among the rocks and alcoves, and we see the birds circle the hill and seemingly head back straight south. Spies of Saruman, Gandalf notes, and he changes the team's trajectory from due south to straight east, endeavoring to venture over the pass of Caradras. We cut over to our nine fellowshippers, now climbing the snowy peaks of the Misty Mountains. Again, we get an establishing long shot, drowning in sky blues and snow whites, before we zoom in on our characters. We see that even in the best of weather, the snow-filled path is hard and slow going, especially for the hobbits. We see Frodo stumble and roll down the mountain before Aragorn catches him. But Frodo makes the tumble alone. The ring, which he had started keeping on a chain around his neck, fell off in the process. We get a close-up of the ring, right in front of the camera, with Aragorn and Frodo in the distance as someone's boots pull into frame. Boromir lifts up the ring, wondering. It is a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt over so small a thing. Yeah, I used that sound clip a couple episodes ago. Sue me. (laughs) Frodo gives Boromir the eye, and Aragorn shouts after him, snapping Boromir out of his ensorcelment. Aragorn demands he return the ring to Frodo, which Boromir does, playing it off as he never had any notion for what should be done with the ring. He musses Frodo's hair and moves on, not aware that Aragorn was gripping his sword during the whole encounter. The scene breaks as we catch up with our friends, the Crabane from Dunland, who have returned to Isengard with word on the Fellowship's latest movements. Saruman menacingly postulates that what would happen if the mountain were to defeat Gandalf and company. He takes to the top of Orthanc to make it so. The film is using Christopher Lee as a narrator here, allowing him to fill in some gaps that may be clunky as dialogue coming from the Fellowship members. The peaceful slopes of the mountain are no more. 
The party is now caught in a full-on snow rager, about to bury everyone. Well, not everyone. Legless is able to glide atop the fallen snow without issue, and as he takes the lead, he recognizes a fell voice on the air. Gandalf knows it's Sauron and tries to cast his own weather spell, but at this point, Sauron is too powerful. A giant bolt of lightning hits the cliff, exploding in a white flash drowning everyone in snow. The hobbits have no hope of braving the storm any further, and honestly, neither does anyone else. They must turn back, and Gimli once again pushes his pro-Moria agenda. Saruman the narrator chimes in once again. Moria, you fear to go into those mines. The dwarves delved too greedily and too deep. You know what they awoke in the darkness of Khazad-dûm. Shadow and flame. Gandalf punts on responsibility and lets Frodo decide. Not knowing much else about it, Frodo agrees to head back down the mountain and make for the mines. We get our third change of scenery for the Fellowship this episode. We are now in the foggy feet of the misty mountains, and the color palette, once green with the hills of Holland and then white and blue on Haradaras, is all grays and blacks literal murk, as we're about to begin a journey into the dark. Gimli usefully points out when we've reached the walls of Moria, and we get an establishing shot of the sheer rock face that acts as a boundary for the dwarf kingdom. After inching alongside a dark pool, the Fellowship finds itself at the doors of Durin, made of Ithildan, which we covered last episode. Only starlight and moonlight will reveal the doors, perfectly realized off a sketch J.R.R. Tolkien had included in the books. Gandalf translates the words on the archway, speak friend and enter, which he takes to mean that all you need is the secret code word to gain access. Gandalf makes a couple attempts at this, but his password is rejected, and he has to click on the forget password link, which in Middle-earth is just pushing really hard on the doors. (laughs) Flummoxed, the group makes brief camp alongside the pool. Sam gives a tearful goodbye to Bill, as the mines of Moria are no place for a pony. Aragon assures Sam, and us, that he'll find his way home, something J.R.R. Tolkien specifically confirms in the text. Everyone else is putzing around, the hobbits are skipping rocks on the lake, surely to no ill effect. We definitely don't see something moving just below the surface. Frodo jumps out of nowhere, suddenly realizing the gate is a riddle. We'll leave off today's recap there as Gandalf and Frodo figure out the answer. It's a riddle. Speak friend and enter. What's the elvish word for friend? Melon. So I want to start today by talking about the skills of Legolas. Legolas is one of my personal favorite characters in these films. Again, not necessarily because he has a lot of pathos or a compelling arc, but mostly because he does badass archery and swordery things. (laughs) The films take a firm stance that the elves are really neat for filmmaking purposes, and I fully support this decision. We will start seeing this more blatantly and regularly in The Two Towers and Return of the King, but in these scenes, we start to get a feel for how Legolas is just built different. Rip to your grandma. (laughs) 
Him spying the crabbing from Dunland isn't much of a moment, but learning that his elf eyes see farther and clearer than others in the next film, we know he's seeing something more concrete than we or the rest of the Fellowship are. Likewise, we see that Legolas can walk atop snow, gliding on it as if a feather on the wind. This isn't even lampshaded. We get one shot of Legolas's boots walking past snow-covered bodies, but no one is like, hey, look at Legolas, which is a change from the text where Legolas himself is, hey, look at me, I rule. (laughs) We will see Legolas's archery skills on full display in Moria, which hints even more at just how badass his depiction will be in the following movies, be it surfing on a shield or down an Oliphant's trunk. Yeah, I think you totally hit the nail on the head here with Legolas and his character changes. And I think like a lot of the changes that the films make um, are <laughs> really good for the sake of like having Orlando Bloom kind of operating at like full throttle in terms of what he's really good at. Not to like dunk too hard on his acting skills, but we all know why he got cast. Um, and I think one of the things that's kind of interesting about this is that like um, in making Legolas into basically Link from The Legend of Zelda. And they kind of flatten out like the overall strangeness of the elves and also kind of like the diversity of them. Um, which is to say like Legolas and Elrond are like in the books fundamentally incredibly different types of elves, but in the films you don't really get that sense. Um, and this might sound like me bitching about that, but I truly do not give a fuck um, because it proves my thesis that the only medium capable of handling Tolkien's elves properly is and should always be anime. <laughs> um, like, honestly, don't even fucking bother trying to deal with these if you're not going to do it in anime. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Um, and I think, like, kind of part and parcel of this and the kind of, like, not cartoonishness, but, like, the kind of, like, um, uh, unfilmability i guess of the elves is one of my favorite little bits um legolas has in this book in particular um which involves um when they're on the pass of Karadras, um they get obviously like pelted by snow and <laughs> Boromir and aragorn do this like absolutely mad strong guy shit where they're like we're gonna use our enormous muscles to go like clear a path through the snow just with our bodies and so they go like running off into the darkness and in the snow and after a while legolas goes off after them to try and find them and there's this brilliant passage in the book, which is, an hour maybe went by, though it seemed far longer, and then at last they saw Legolas coming back. At the same time, Boromir and Aragorn reappeared round the bend far behind him and came laboring up the slope. Well, cried Legolas as he ran up, I have not brought the sun. She is walking in the blue fields of the south, and a little wreath of snow on this redhorn hillock troubles her not at all. But I have brought back a gleam of good hope for those who are doomed to go on feet. There is the greatest wind drift of all beyond the turn, and there our strong men were almost buried. (laughs) They despaired until I returned and told them that the drift was a little wider than a wall, and on the other side the snow suddenly grows less, while further down it is no more than a white coverlet to cool a hobbit's toes. And it's so, like, verbose and, like, oddly cheerful and very, like almost kind of divorced from like the harsh winter reality of the world and it's so lovely and funny and I just like I'm grinning like a fool every single time I read this and I think that is like this brilliant contrast between like film Legolas and book Legolas but I think film Legolas in a lot of ways is so much better suited for what they're doing because if you have this like (laughs) 
<laughs> grinning, giggling fool running around. I feel like you would actually lose quite a bit of like the tonal like efficiency <laughs> of these films. Yeah, he's maybe a little more grim in the films, but he kind of still has some of that bombastic language or uses 20 words where three would do, um, which I think uh, still plays effectively, especially, I guess, in relation to the other performance and characters on screen. So this part of the story takes place in Eregion, which is the land of the Holly in Sindarin, Holly referring to the tree. It is now known as Holland. This area of Middle-earth, which is west of the Misty Mountains between the Grey Flood and, the Dun- and Dunland, was once inhabited by elves going back to the Second Age. These elves, the Noldoran, had genial relationships with the dwarves of Moria as they shared a border. During this time, Galadriel and Celeborn ruled from the capital of Austin Edil before eventually they moved and settled in Lothlorien on the other side of the mountains. This region would end up being devastated during the War of the Elves and Sauron, and most of the country thereafter would be unpopulated aside from fallen ruins. The ruins we see in the background as the Fellowship marches theoretically belong to these elves. Moving on to Karadras, which I hope I'm saying correctly, Karadras. Do you want to give that give that to me once, Emily? <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, just for context for our listeners, I wrote an absolutely batshit pronunciation guide. <clears throat> Karadras <laughs> is um, one of the weirder words in uh, the books um, and also in the films because the DH letter combination in Sindarin kind of has like a like a, a TH kind of TH sound. Like I, I can't even I can't describe it well, which is why I wrote this batshit pronunciation guide. But my pronunciation guide is like Ka, like Khan from the Star Trek movies. Um, I wrote the yelling Khan, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Rad, which is, this is my truly batshit one, um, as in Rara Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen, but with a very soft D at the end, brackets, ha 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 ha. And then Thra, like the, the start of Thrawn, because I can't do anything without a Star Wars reference. And then a long S uh, for with a snake emoji, um, which is by far and away the furthest thing from like a proper pronunciation guide. Um, but I'm a little bit matic and I do really like this word. So <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I'm going to make Emily tweet out her pronunciation guide when we post this episode, because <laughs> it is truly one of the most unhinged things we've done on this podcast yet. And we have done several unhinged things. <laughs> So Karathras, also known as the Redhorn or Barazinbar, or as Karathras the Cruel by the dwarves themselves. It represents the tallest of the three mountains under which the dwarf city of Khazad-dûm was built. The pass that our fellowship is taking is also known as the Redhorn Pass or the Dimril Stair and was the furthest south of the passes over the Misty Mountains. Once the orcs would overrun Moria, the pass itself would become even more treacherous as Elrond's wife, Calabrian, was once captured there. We spent a lot of time in the previous couple episodes talking about Boromir's villainous introduction, and no real need to relitigate that here. I do remember how this movie played for me the first time through, though, and how it veered away from expectations. Watching this the first time, and noticing the looks Aragorn shot at Boromir during the council scene, and how he gripped his sword hilt when Boromir picked up the chain, I was sure we were building to an Aragorn vs. Boromir showdown. Again, I hadn't read the books, and I was thinking about 006's heel turn in Goldeneye. 
To me, they were clearly building heat to a climactic showdown. For those of you that never dabbled in pro wrestling, building heat is the process of making sure there is enough interest and tension in a matchup between two fighters so that when it occurs, the crowd is fully into it. If Boromir and Aragon are going to headline WrestleMania, then they better start having these small (laughs) encounters beginning at the Royal Rumble. So this scene acts as a way to ratchet up that tension for a supposed fight the audience expects to come. Of course, the film doesn't go this route. Aragorn and Boromir never show down, but are posed as opposites in how they treat Frodo at Parth Galen. And their relationship doesn't end with a sword fight, but a tender kiss. I can't really fault anyone upset with how this was adapted from the book, but as a naive moviegoer who generally understands the language of cinema, this was a great change. Yeah, so I mean, I am someone uh, not just prone, but like enamored with bitching about changes in, in these films from from book to films. And I actually can't really fault um, the Boromir changes. Like, I get annoyed about the villain entrance, but I think all of the subsequent changes after his like villain entrance are really, really good. Um, and you know, I'm I'm a Boromir like character defender, and I think actually some of the changes that happen to his character in the films are quite good because they do make him overall, I think, more sympathetic to a wider audience than uptight Boromir in the books necessarily is. Um, and I think that's kind of largely because there's this like casual kind of like informal element to Boromir's character in the films that is like a stark change from what he's got going in the books where he's kind of like a hard ass. Um, it's not, I, I don't want to be mean, but it's not like he's like a dick in the books. He isn't. He's just like very much like, I, I've got a job to do. I'm here to do it. I'm really not here to like go on a life altering emotional journey with my bros. He's not here to chat about his emotions. He's not here to go to like therapy with the lads. He's Gondor's captain general. He's at work clocking overtime. He's not keen to sit in the break room with like the company morons. And I'm not like totally sure how I feel about like the like increased like fatherhood elements of Boromir's character. Because I think it kind of allows for this notion that there could have been a place for Boromir in the post-war world, which just like really isn't the case in the books, as we talked about in, in Boromir's episode. Um, in the books, the tragedy of Boromir is that even before the corruption of the ring gets to him, he's someone who's already been so shaped and so corrupted by war itself that the thought of peace is almost completely orthogonal to his very being. Um, whereas in the films, the tragedy of Boromir is that he dies too soon and needlessly. I don't want to say like one element of tragedy is more effective than the other. They're both like immensely effective, but I do actually think that noting that difference is kind of important because it does kind of help to delineate what these two films or what these two films, what these two texts are doing um, and and where those kind of divergences happen. Um, and I also think it kind of speaks to something about like, uh, uh, like authorial <laughs> intent, I guess. Um, when Tolkien was writing Lord of the Rings, he wasn't writing any of these characters really to be like immensely relatable characters. I, I mean, I guess the hobbits aside, um, but you know, the, the men folk he was writing because they all served a narrative purpose. And if people, if audience members, audience members, if like readers later related to those characters, then great. That's perfect. But I think in films, because you spend so much less time with these characters and you, ha- you're privy to so 
like significantly fewer of their actions and their and their thoughts. And you have to kind of amp up the relatability and the kind of like informality. And given that this is the '90s, where like everybody's like whatever backwards hats and skateboarding and Steve Buscemi, hello fellow youths or whatever. Like I think this kind of like make Boromir a dad element is kind of a good way of kind of bringing him back down to the audience level and making him someone who you can relate to, so that when you watch this corruption and death happen later is a bit more of a gut punch than just watching a kind of tight ass aristocrat die because in that case truly boo fucking who and i have a comment i want to make on adaptation and you know apologies we're going to veer into game of thrones territory here a bit but one of the pitfalls of adaptation i see often not just related to these fantasy stories but just all around is that they bump up animosity or an antagonism between characters because they really don't know what else to do. Um, and, you know, I could have seen a lesser version of the Lord of the Rings. We talked about Boromir's villainous entrance, uh, but they could have even played it up even more and even have like a mini showdown between Aragorn and Boromir. Um, not one that would be fatal or alter the quest or the story significantly, um, but it just it's a cheap way to build tension. And Game of Thrones, when it really started to kind of lose the thread on some of its plots, all it could come up with is, oh, there's two characters here. Let's just make them needlessly antagonistic towards each other. Um, there were times where it was, you know, pretty innocuous, like, say, Mira Reed and Osha in uh, season three. But when Arya Stark goes to Bravos, there's this character known as the Waif, who in the books is pretty much just one of her colleagues. And they do stuff together. They clean the house of black and white together. There is no antagonism there. But since the writers really had no idea what to do with Arya Stark in Bravos, which, you know, George Martin has not finished writing, they just turned one of the characters into an antagonist just for a cheap tension and a cheap payoff down the road. And then this really, really screwed up uh, season seven of Game of Thrones when Arya Stark and Sansa Stark returned to Winterfell and not really knowing what to do there. They were unnecessarily antagonistic to each other um, for no real great reason. In the end, it was a very clunky twist about Littlefinger involved. But this is something that I always try to keep on when looking at adaptations of text is are they just trying to go for, oh, well, we have two characters. We don't know what to do with them. Let's just make one kind of villainous so it creates some tension or a through line through these stories. So um, that kind of subversion, and I don't know if it's a real subversion in this story where Aragorn and Boromir are kind of building towards something but never really do, I think is a, probably the best handling of something like that I've seen in a major adaptation. Yeah, I I think you're for sure right on that. And I also think there's there's this kind of this element where like Boromir is in this film at least, Boromir is Gondor. Um we mm-hmm. we don't really have Gondor outside of Boromir. Um and and given that we know that Aragorn's part of of his quest, like his emotional part of this quest is is becoming the king of Gondor, we need to have some sense that Gondor is worth having. Um, and if Boromir is just an out and out cunt the whole way through, and he's just someone that we like don't sympathize with, we don't want to see like succeed, who who like is meant to be this representative of his people, but seems to represent his people as just like an absolute rat bastard, then why do we care that Aragorn wants to be king? Who would want to be king of a people like that? And so they have to thread this this needle very carefully. And I think in fellowship they do it 
better than they do it in the other two films. And, you know, we'll get into that later in my, in my, in my ongoing complaining about Gondor. But I think like they, they do it really excellently in this film. Um, and they are very careful to make sure that Boromir never strays too far from that kind of thesis about the men that they, that Gladriel sets up in the prologue, which is, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with the men. They just are sometimes a bit prideful. Um, and, um, Boromir sticks quite closely to that. And so when Boromir dies, um, and Aragorn makes this, this promise to him, this vow to him, we are genuinely interested in seeing it through and we're not like, Hey, fuck that guy. And I think like you are absolutely spot on introducing like needless tension there just for the sake of a little bit more melodrama would have totally killed that whole Gondor plot. So we'll transition over to our cinematography and score section. Many of the most iconic landscapes from these movies occur right here. Simply just our party members trekking over land with helicopter and crane shots doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Even when we get similar scenes like this in the Hobbit films, my heart swells as if I'm watching better movies. (laughs) Also, keep note of the velocity of the camera here with all nine members, including an old wizard and four hobbits. It's a little bit slower, more deliberate as compared to our opening scenes in the two towers, what with the three hunters. With Legolas, Aragorn, and Gimli in hot pursuit of the Uruks, the camera moves faster to properly capture the chase. This um this hill scene, the the Aragian scene, is genuinely one of my favorite transitions between two different settings in I think in any of the films really. Um and, and it's because it does this like incredible stylization. Um uh, it is so stark between Rivendell and between Aragian, and it's one of the first kind of scenes in the films where I was the the film itself forced me to think more seriously about like the craft of film and like I mean you know despite being someone who's doing a podcast about a film um or a series of films I'm not someone who like goes into um movies and is like spending a lot of time thinking about what's going on in in the films usually I'm very much like the ideal movie watcher in some ways because I sit down in a movie theater and turn my brain off and I'm like everything that they are putting in front of me is totally real I totally get it I'm not thinking about like the craft behind it but this transition from Rivendell to Aragian is so beautifully done and also so stark in how the the changes are made that I was like, okay, now I'm thinking about what's going on here, which is, I think, one of the real strengths the, the, of these films. Um, but the thing that I really want to highlight is the color palette change. Um, so in Rivendell, you've got these like soft, dreamy autumnal tones. And then in Aragian, you've got these like super bright and clear summer tones. There's like this sharpness to the image quality almost. And I'm really sorry. I'm not like a, like a photography person at all. Um, so I'm not sure if I'm like articulating this correctly, but the, the best way I could say to kind of like evince the difference between them is that both Rivendell, um, and Aragian have these, um, like sharp cliffs and neither one of them looks more like geo- geologically geographically steep than the other like they both look like pretty sharp steep drops but the Aragian cliff faces look sharper and more deadly than the Rivendell ones and it's because there's this like palette change there's this this shift from like the soft kind of gauzy um filter i guess over the lens to in Aragian this like harsh bright 
um, very kind of overt looking shot. And I think that, that one beautiful shot, um, a helicopter shot that you're talking about with the nine, um, well, the 10 with Bill <laughs> or 11, um, Bill's two actors, um, poor guys in, uh, donkey costumes having to walk up those hills. Um, but, um, yeah, it is, it is just absolutely brilliant. And I think it is like, again, another one of these, these shots that really shows, um, how the creative team behind these films is really thinking about how the, what tools are at their disposal and how to really punch everything up to 11. Yeah, now I got this poison thought in my brain about falling off a cliff in Rivendell, like, haha, yes, yes, and then falling <laughs> off a cliff a cliff in Eregion. Well, this fucking sucks. What the hell was that? Um, <laughs> um, I can just say, as a Lord of the Rings online player, where you can play in both areas, um, falling off of the cliffs in Eregion is an absolute bitch, because it does take you like an hour to walk back up, whereas like dropping off in Rivendell, you can just bamf back up to the top super easy. So you, <laughs> the meme stands, the meme holds. When the crows circle the campground, I really love the long shot of the hill that's utilized here, as we see all the fellowship members make for a hiding spot and disappear from our point of view, or the camera's point of view, right before the birds arrive. It's just something that really sticks out to me, and as someone who does another podcast about a game based on hide-and-seek, it's just something that I really love, using the camera as a way to make that stealth come to life. (laughs) <laughs> and this is where you've got like these high level observations and I'm going to come in with like crashing through the wall, like the Kool-Aid man, but Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid man were like 10% more rubbish. Um, but Legolas here reminds me of Tippy Hedren and the birds. Um, there's this like scene in the birds where, you know, the birds are revealed, um, but she's sitting on a bench, like eating or smoking or something. And all of the birds are kind of coalescing on like the playground equipment behind her. And she gets this look in her eyes and on her face as she's like turning around to see the the birds. And it's the exact same face that Legolas makes. And it cracks me up every time it is a spot on recreation. Oh, that's great. And knowing what we do know about Peter Jackson, it's very likely that the birds were at least some part an influence on these scenes. I'm serious. Legolas is an old Hollywood dame. This is like my favorite aesthetic choice ever. Hopping over to Karatharos, I just really love the mise-en-scene here. Mise-en-scene literally just meaning the shit on the screen. And by that, I mostly am referring to the color composition. It's all the blues and whites. And it's just not similar to any other scenes we get again, even in, say, The Return of the King with the lighting of the beacons, which are also snowy mountaintops against a blue sky. But for some reason, this color palette just really pops here. You know, it's also really striking because that that color palette in in that shot is actually like, I mean, I'm not, I'm sorry to do like the boring modern movie suck kind of wank, but like that blue, heavy, heavy blue color palette is a really common color palette right now. Um, very trendy in like action movies and um, <clears throat> The Rise of Skywalker. Um, and I think it's quite jarring <laughs> to see here because it works really well. And I'm, and usually I see that blue and I'm like, all right, whatever I'm about to see is just going to make me mad. And in this, it, it isn't. It works brilliantly and it's a beautiful kind of scene setting thing. And, and it, it really reminds me of <laughs> when <laughs> when movies looked pretty. <laughs> Yeah. And since you got on the Star Wars tangent, I wonder how much of it is probably not intentionally, but it does remind me a little bit of Hoth from The Empire Strikes Back. The Ooh. skies aren't as blue or clear there, but when I think of major snowy sky blue sequences, that's probably the other one that pops into mind. Yeah, no, that's do- that's totally a good call. 
So I want to hop over, or at least stay on Karadaras, but talk about the moment where Boromir picks up the ring. For these perspective shots, the production crew created a giant-sized version of the ring, which is about the size of two hands when held, to help center and emphasize the presence of the ring, especially when working with other things in frame, such as actors like Aragorn and Frodo are in the background. Uh, This giant ring was also used during the Council of Elrond scenes that we discussed last time out. Um, And then one other note about this sequence is that when Boromir picks up the ring, you can hear an angelic choir behind him in Quenya, which I think Emily pulled the lyrics for. Yeah, so the lyrics are called in the liner notes, which are impressively hard to track down online. This is like, there's been the death of the CD, and I'm gonna get roasted by everybody who, like, knows me, um, because I have been, like, vehemently anti-physical media for a long time, just because I, like, move every couple of years. But now I'm coming back around to it, because trying to find any of the, like, commentary or any of the liner notes for any of these albums is fucking impossible online i got really lucky because connor my partner has the like physical copy of the cd but without that i would have been screwed anyways tangent aside uh the <laughs> lyrics that are used here um are in quenya um, and i'm I, you know I, i'm just not even gonna like i'm not gonna butcher it i'll just say um in english um but it's a quenya translation of something that boromir says at the council of elrond in the books um and the quote is the men of gondor are valiant and they will never submit but they may be beaten down Valor needs strength and then a weapon. Let the ring be your weapon if it has such power as you say. Take it and go forth to victory. And um, they translated that into Quenya um, and shortened it down um, quite a bit. And then had the London Boys Choir, I believe it is, who who do most of the choral uh, work in these films uh, sing it. Um, and it's just really delightful. Um, and it pops up in a couple different places. I think it pops up um, when Frodo touches the ring for the first time in the Shire and oh, oh my god, yeah. The other the other time it shows up is uh, when Faramir uh, is tempted by the ring in the Two Towers. Um, but yes, that's it. Just for its sense of wonder, I really do love the shot of Saruman atop Orthanc calling the storm onto Karathras. I mentioned during the Treason of Isengard that I loved the wizard fight just because it felt very elemental or classical to me. This too engenders that same feel. Two wizards casting weather spells miles away from each other is just the kind of thing that tickles my brain, something I didn't really know I needed, but I did. Yeah, and this one is really exciting for me as well, um, because, hey, theme of the episode, um, all of the, like, spooky magic that all of the, all of the wizards, the two wizards, um, Gandalf and Saruman speak in the films is Quenya, um, and this is kind of, it's like, it's not a strange adaptation choice, it's a perfectly good adaptation choice, I just find it, like, really interesting, it kind of tweaks something in my brain, because, um, in, is, in the books, <laughs> there's not really that language change like that, um, I, I'm pretty sure, like, Gandalf does a couple of the spells in Sindarin, and some of them in Westron, or at least they're, like, re- related in the common tongue, um, and in the, the films, they're really taking advantage of the fact that they have all of these languages, created languages at their disposal, and obviously, like, a really excellent kind of, like, neo-elvish, um, consultant on board. Um, and so they're kind of adding this additional level of kind of distance from the audience and, and foreignness and strangeness to what Saruman and, and Gandalf later are saying by using this tertiary language. And it's, it is really effective and very spooky. 
Moving to the score a bit, we talked about the fellowship theme last time out as it is played as a victory lap of sorts when the fellowship is formed. Here, we see it repurposed into a march, perhaps most notably because of the drums behind it, which give it a steady pace for our fellowship to trek to. Whoa. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm really excited about this. Um, I This is one of my favorite little bits of music and scenery work, in certainly in this film. Um, maybe only defeated in any of the films by the Plains of Rohan and the, the fucking baller string arrangement there. Um, but this one is really exciting. Um, and at the very, very start of the first shot of Aragian, there's this kind of like... <laughs> It's it's a horror-like uh, trilling strings, um, and I think probably the easiest way for me to explain it is for me to stop trying to explain it and just drop in a little uh, music here. And then compare it to this multi-string section of um, a musical score I think you will certainly recognize. And I think this is just, again, one of these things that we talk about quite quite often is Peter Jackson and the horror influences and that for anybody who didn't get it off the bat, and that's totally fine if you didn't, is um, Psycho. Um, it's one of the the uh, like more fulsome uh, parts of the uh, music that's playing um, as Janet Lee is getting stabbed to death in the shower. Um, get it, girl. Um and, and this is just one of these things where the music is kind of um, at a base level, at a foundational level, playing up this element of fear and, and kind of panic, because above this trilling strings, you have that bright and beautiful horn, but they really underscore it with this kind of unsettling and like uncomfortable horror-inspired string arrangement, which I just, just love. Delightful. Um, and then the other really excellent and interesting thing here is, well, not interesting. Actually, it's not interesting at all, but I want to point it out because I think it is really kind of fun. And um, there's a rolling timpani and that fills out kind of like the basement level of the like orchestral building, I guess, to use like a really like hackneyed um, analogy. Um, it's like not like these timpanies are actually doing anything particularly like exciting or unique or innovative. Um, but they are so brilliant, brilliantly used here. And it's just another one of these examples of these movies using the tools at their command and like a really classic and kind of like time honored way to produce these like stunning epic effects. So it's like, they are literally looking at like everything they have available to them. And they're like, we are going to use this in like, we are going to use a, the a timpani in a fashion that is essentially the platonic ideal of a timpani. And in doing so, we are going to up the ante of this like epic feeling of this film Instead of trying to do anything like, you know, to compare it to Star Wars, actually, in the timpani in particular, and Star Wars is interesting because Williams, John Williams often kind of caps the timpani. So instead of that long kind of rolling sound that you get, pedaled sound that you get with the timpani, you're actually getting quite like a, a not a muffled, but like a, a, a shorter kind of muted timpani sound. Um, and that kind of characterizes, particularly like in the Imperial March, if you want to go listen to the Imperial March um, and hear what the timpanis are doing there, where they're kind of cut off um, before their time. And that is like an innovative and interesting use of um, the timpani um, as an instrument. That's not really what timpanis are meant to be doing. 
in this film and in this particular section of the score, the timpanis are playing as timpanis are meant to be. And because they are playing as they are meant to be, they are really building up this like high impact, um, like sound. And I know this sounds like kind of like a weird and overblown way of saying it, but like it is like driving a really like fast and well-engineered German car. Um, and you know that you are driving like the best that you can have and it is not going to be flashy and it is not going to be excited, but it is going to get you where you're trying to go better than anything else. And that is what these films are doing. Um, and then my favorite part, um, the horns. Um, I am so excited about the horns. Um, the, um, it, well, I say I'm excited, but I'm actually like, it's, kind of triggering like a personal crisis for me and um, because as I've said like a couple times and will continue to say um I <laughs> played French horn for like two years when I was a in middle schooler um, and then quit it um because it was undiagnosed ADHD and what mistake that was because the French horn is just an absolutely brilliant um instrument and I think never used more effectively than it than it is here and this is another example of these instruments kind of being used in the most like expansive and comprehensive way that they could possibly be used. They are being used definitionally and it's doing remarkable things. Um, but in, um, in, in the last little shots of Rivendell, you're getting a, the French horn at kind of the lower and quieter and more muffled and mellow end of its, its kind of range and its capabilities. And then as you begin to climb into Regian, there's this like brilliant and bright and clear and reverberating French horn sound. Um, and, and I guess to kind of contextualize this for, for those who don't know, um, French horns are like really exciting brass instruments because unlike trumpets, um, <laughs> they're better heralded kind of counterparts. They have this like really remarkable range. And so they can play those beautiful soaring high notes like we hear at the height of this theme. And then also these kind of like mellow poetic, not muffled, but lower notes, um, like soothing notes that we hear in Rivendell. Um, and I tend to be kind of like hesitant on praising brass instruments too much because like really often they are the most notable part of like any orchestral arrangement. I mean, if you are asked to name film scores, you're probably going to name Star Wars and Indiana Jones. And those are brass heavy and they are made by the brass, really. Um, and so usually I want to like I want to try and focus on like the the lesser um uh, lesser exposed parts of like the instrumentation. So that would be like woodwinds or percussion or whatever. Um, and here it's hard to not focus on the horns because they are being used just so, so brilliantly. And one thing I really, really want to point out that, that like really makes my heart sore is um, this little bit of the um, fellowship theme. And, and as you listen to this, I want you to like try and listen to the clanging of the metal which is quite literally the the harness producing such a beautiful and like full sound on the instrument that the metal itself is properly shaking and you can hear that reverberation in the music and in the tone and it's just delightful And so my last little uh, little notesy here, um, uh, to harken back to um, a shortcut to mushrooms, I believe. Um, this is not a film and a film series that often has silence. Um, it is very much scored um, in such a way that you cut out most of the dialogue and still really understand what was going on under the auspices of the music that's playing in the background. Um, so it is then really significant that there is the silence, um, and it's this tiny, tiny lapse in music. 
um, pre-Crabine, and it's just when Legolas is hopping up onto a slightly higher rock, and there's that silence before the truly horror-inspired music kicks in, and that, I think, is just absolutely masterful. All right, it's time for our token, token book mention, and I wanted to start it with Build a Pony. Back when our hobbits were in Bree, there were all sorts of shenanigans that occurred which the film excised to focus on the Nazgul attack. During that night, someone had released all the horses in the stables of the Prancing Pony, so the hobbits and Strider were desperate the next morning for any mount. They had to settle for a sickly horse owned by Bill Fernie, the guy who probably let loose all the horses in the first place, so that he could jack up the price for this horse. Twelve silver pennies for Bill. But under the care of Samwise Gamgee, and later spending significant time in Rivendell, Bill became strong and healthy. The pony would be named Bill almost as a clapback to its previous owner. (laughs) In the books, Sam does not let him go, but rather Bill flees when the Watcher in the Water attacks, which we'll get to in the next episode. But Gandalf had whispered words to Bill to make sure he'd be safe, and the hobbits would discover him upon their return to Bree after the destruction of the One Ring. Bill will also play a role in the Battle of the Bywater during the scouring of the Shire scene at the end of the story. Yeah, and this is a moment where I'm, I'm going to go back to being super wanky and pretentious. But I mean, if there's ever a moment to be wanky and pretentious, it's, it's on a Lord of the Rings podcast. Um, but I want to introduce to the uh, my brother, my captain, my pod uh, canon, um, Tolkien's essay um, on fairy stories. Um, and it was an essay that was initially delivered as a lecture um, six months before the start of World War II at St. Andrews University, um, which is just down the road for me, um, excitingly, um, as if I'm going to like walk there and suddenly back into 1939, whatever. Anyways, um, so the essay essentially argues for like the creation of a new genre, kind of placing it against, like, um, for example, sci-fi as kind of um, epitomized by like the works of H.G. Wells, Traveler's Tales, like Jonathan Swift's Gulliver, um, Dream Stories, like Lewis Carroll and um, Alice in Wonderland, um, and Beast Tales, like Aesop's Fables. Um, and Tolkien is arguing for the creation of like a, or recognition of the genre of fairy stories, um, which later becomes what we now broadly call fantasy. And this essay does a lot of really important things and it's something that like I really recommend you dig into at some point it is like quite long and and very wordy but like Tolkien is actually quite like a fun I mean obviously a fun writer like like obviously but he's he's quite an accessible writer on even some quite like scholarly topics um and so if you want to read a bit of academic like writing or speech giving that is um actually like accessible and not a horrible read this would be the thing that I would recommend to you um, but amongst the like 30 odd pages um, that comprise the essay, um, there is one very, very small bit that I want to highlight for like why Bill matters. And it is this quote. Um, Far more powerful and poignant is the effect of joy in a serious ter- tale of fairy. In such stories, when the sudden turn comes, we get a piercing glimpse of joy and heart's desires that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of the story and lets a gleam come through. And basically what Tolkien's doing here is pitching against the needlessly grim or dark. Um, and indeed, even some, some of his words, works, like the Silmarillion, um, are often derided as grimdark. There's still like an emphasis and an acknowledgement of 
joy and the value of finding the little moments of joy. Um, like, for example, this really, really short line from the Quenta of Silmarillion. For if joyful is the fountain that rises from the sun, its springs are in the wells of sorrow unfathomed at the foundations of the earth. In other words, joy springs from sorrow, but joy is no lesson because of that sorrow. And there really is no value in ignoring the joy that is there, because to do so would be to deny ourselves water, one of the core components of life. And I think in in this really brief and, and sweet moment, Bill is kind of this water. Bill is this this kind of small creature of the land who is, you know, basically unable to defend himself, but but exists to to help and aid others. Um, and, and, and really is kind of this like, um, ultimate kind of inherent goodness in the world. And that we later find out and go back to and emphasize the fact that Bill is totally fine, is finding those moments of joy and, and sweetness and, and like, um, kind of like universal love in, in the, the story. And I think that is kind of crucial to me to understanding like the purpose of Lord of the Rings um, and, and the value of it. And certainly for me, why I love it and come back to it time and time again. Um, and also because I think there really is something <laughs> delightful about going on this epic quest, um, really fighting the ultimate fight against good and evil. Um, and then also making sure that we always know where the ponies are. Yeah, that's really sweet. I feel like I have to go back and introduce this into my Metal Gear Solid podcast because the backstory behind Metal Gear Solid 3 is two former allies, one codenamed The Joy and the other codenamed The Sorrow, and Ugh. one having to kill the other or else they would kill their kids. So um, uh, uh, please hold for the director's cut of Podcast Sans Frontier is coming in 2025. <laughs> Moving on to the Doors of Durin, also known as the West Gate, the Doors of Durin gave entrance to the dwarf kingdom of Khazad-dûm. The doors were made with Ithildin, which is worked from the Mithril per our last episode. The door depicts two holly trees as its border, which I think were used because holly trees were plentiful to the region of Eregion and Holland, but are themselves a reference to the high tree of, of the elves um, is just part of the kind of iconography that surrounds their culture. Celebrimbor helped create the doors alongside the dwarf Narvi during the Second Age to facilitate commerce and com uh, commute to and through Moria. Do you want to say the motherfucking thing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, so I was just gonna say, I feel like we need on this podcast, we need to get like a like a klaxon, like a siren, like the fucking Fenorians are at it again, siren, because I feel like they have literally shown up in every single episode. But Calibrimber is the son of Kurvan, who is the son of Feanor. Uh, and uh, Calibrimber, if you will remember from one of our previous episodes, helped to create like the rings of power, um, and is the last of the house of Feanor and uh sound the alarm, sound the like foghorn, air horn. Uh, Fenorians doing wild, wacky shit again. <laughs> the doors would initially be sealed shut after Eregion fell to Sauron during the War of the Elves and Sauron. I'm going to get into some of the description of the door as it is laid out in the Fellowship of the Ring. The outline could be seen of an anvil and a hammer surmounted by a crown with seven stars. Beneath these again were two trees, each bearing crescent moons. More clearly than all else, there shone forth in the middle of the door a single star with many rays. Yeah, and so this is like a really symbolism, symbology, symbolism, yeah, symbolism heavy a bit obviously like this is really Tolkien at his least subtle um but it is an interesting bit of history um so the anvil and the hammer is Durin symbol um 
And the crown with the seven stars is actually interesting because it likely represents Durin's crown, but the seven stars symbol shows up literally everywhere in Middle-earth. It's also on um, Gondor's crest with the white tree, and Aragorn wears it loads. Um, so like, don't necessarily pin too much emphasis on its relationship to like Elendil's symbol. Um, it is very, very likely just Durin's crown. But, you know, just worth noting that that seven star shit shows up everywhere. Um, the two trees with a crescent moon, as you say, um, it's probably a reference to the tree that grew in Tyrion, the high tree of the elves, um, which itself has, again, as, all, as with all things in this story, um, a very long and significant history that goes straight back to Valinor. I don't necessarily want to get like too bogged down in telling that story here, um, but if you've seen that promo picture for the new Amazon show that they tweeted out on their account like a couple months ago, God, it was probably a year ago now for all I know, for all that I can keep time. Um, anyways, you'll probably have seen um, the two trees in the background, the really bright... <laughs> They're basically just bright spots in the background. Um, those are the mother trees of the tree that grew in Tyrion. Uh, one thing you just have to like make your peace with if you ever try and read these books is that there's just a lot of tree symbolism. Uh, you know, just buckle in, go with it. Um, it's fine. Um, and then the star with many rays is the star of Feanor. The Feanorian star is the symbol of the house of Feanor. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is really, I feel like, again, like I said earlier, we just need like an air horn for Feanor, 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 Feanor. <laughs> Why did you do this? Um, but yes, uh, that is the, in, in short, uh, the symbolism on Durin's doors. So, woohoo. Um, I want to bring in Boromir yet again, um, and I just want to quickly talk through uh, like a, a character moment in the book in this scene that I really, really love for Boromir. Um, and it, maybe it's because um, after having said all of this about like, oh, relatability doesn't really matter in the book, um, is a scene that I relate to deeply. <laughs> um, but um, Boromir lives in a house and a family where he's like absolutely the dumbest guy around. Like, it's not his fault. He's definitely not dumb. Um, his like father and brother are just turbo turbo clever and like he really never stood a chance um so it's like not likely that Boromir is ever really in the habit of getting to feel like cleverer than that um and if the leader conduct in the books of both his father and brother is anything to go by um they're both probably fucking awful to argue with and be around generally so there's this interaction between Boromir and Gandalf in the book um and all that I could think um on one of my later rereadings of the books was god this must have felt so cathartic for Boromir for finally getting to be the like oh you're a moron guy instead of being guy who is moron um but the scene is this what does it mean by speak friend and enter asked mary that is plain enough said gimli if you are a friend speak the password and the doors will open and you can enter yes said gandalf these doors are probably governed by words some dwarf gates will only open at special times or for particular reasons and some have locks and keys that are still needed when all necessary times and words are known these doors have no key in the days of durin they were not secret they usually stood open and door wards stood here. But if they were shut, any who knew the opening word could speak it and pass in. At least so is recorded, is it not, Gimli? It is, said the dwarf, but what the word was is not remembered. Narvi and his craft and all his kindred have vanished from the earth. But do you not know the word, Gandalf? asked Boromir in surprise. No, said the wizard. The others looked dismayed. 
only Aragorn, who knew Gandalf well, remained silent and unmoved. And this is just, like, I'm, like, pumping my fist in the air, like, yeah, Boromir, get one over, finally, knock that wizard down a peg. Um, and it is delightful. Um, and um, for anybody who is, like, old slash uncool enough to remember the TV show, the sitcom, Will and Grace, there's this awesome bit where it's, I think it's Debbie Reynolds, yeah, it must be Debbie Reynolds, um, who plays one of the main characters' mothers, has this thing called, like, the I Told You So dance. Um, and I'm, as Whenever I read this passage, I just imagine Boromir doing his little I told you so dance. <laughs> um, and just a brief note, uh, a brief word note. Uh, we call it Moria. Um, it is totally fine to call it Moria. Um, I'm not like passing judgment or telling you that you shouldn't do it. Um, but Moria is, as a term, as a name, is basically a dunk on Khazadum. Um, it's Cinderin for like Black Chasm or Black Pit. Um, which is the elves and everybody else who uses the term Moria basically calling it like an enormous gaping shithole. So, you know, that's some fun context there. And speaking of Moria, we'll wrap up today's episode by talking a little bit about the change of who actually wants to go through Moria versus who is deathly opposed to it. In the films, Gimli is the one who's pushing for Moria while Gandalf is reticent. However, in the books, Gandalf, not Gimli, is the one considering the Moria path and much to Aragorn's consternation. Yeah, and so this is really interesting because it's a it's an insightful bit of like Dwarrow internal politics and history that we get in Gimli's opposition in the books to going through Moria. Um, because he's repeatedly like, please do not make us go. Please don't do it. We are almost certain that Balin is dead. We know something like deeply fucked up is probably in there. Do not do this. And Gandalf and and, and Aragorn to a lesser extent, but not in the same way, um, kind of charges on ahead and doesn't really say very much to like verify or even kind of indulge what Gimli's warnings are. Um, and there's the scene just before everything goes to shit um, on Kairos where uh, Aragorn and uh, Gandalf are wide awake. Um, and they're both basically like, we know, we know there's something like really scary in Moria. We know that that's an option, but let's basically not tell anybody else about that. And if we have to go through there, then we have to go through there. And it's better that they don't know. Um, and you know, there's like plenty of arguments to be made about whether or not that is like a reasonable thing to do. Maybe it is better to just lead them through blind. So they're not as scared, but it is, if nothing else, a very firm, um, enunciation of each of their leadership styles um and it is not one that i approve of but just like a really brilliant and short series of lines that i think is quite revealing and really speaks to like the efficiency of the writing in these books yeah and i assume the film played it up because they want to just have gandalf be stalwart the kind of cautious but like all most knowing of the group whereas Gimli's like well this is a dwarf thing so I'm pro this dwarf thing which you know makes sense for adaptation I guess um economicization maybe that's a real word um but it was just funny reading this again uh uh, two nights ago now um because now I'm reading this with Emily's anti-Gandalf propaganda fresh in (laughs) fresh in my head at least book Gandalf at (laughs) least so just like him being like oh we should go through here we should go through here um definitely kind of pops up um or definitely reads different after all the stuff we've discussed uh this uh this uh, this podcast rather uh over the course of the last couple months 
So this is actually interesting because, um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, like, Gandalf's behavior in the books is definitely inexcusable, but I actually think the adaptation makes him, like, even more of a dickhead because it is, like, very very heavily implied that he knows that something, in, in the films, this is to say, it's very heavily implied that he knows that something is messed up in Moria because, like, he repeated... Gimli is like, let's go via Moria. My cousin will give us like a kingly welcome or whatever. And Gandalf just has this ominous line where he's like, no, Gimli, even if there were no other choice, I would not go through Moria and doesn't elaborate. And for like, imagine being Gimli in this situation because Gimli's like, oh yeah, my cousin Balin, great lad. Like, we'll go. He'll have some tents for us. We'll have some food. It'll be great. And Gandalf is like, no, fuck your cousin. I would not ever want to sit and have a beer with him if, if it was literally the last thing I did. No context, no explanation. Gimli must have felt terrible in that moment. Like, what a horrible thing to do to someone. And then just right the way through, where, like, Gandalf is making all of these kind of faces as they're walking through Moria, and is definitely kind of aware that something is coming. Maybe not necessarily the Balrog, but he's, he's like, aware that something screwed up is going on down there, and just never bothers saying anything to anyone. As I think in the films, like, quite a more, like shockingly egregious kind of abdication of like duty or transparency from Gandalf than in the books where at least Gimli is like very openly and loudly and repeatedly being like bad idea, bad idea. Nope. Nope. Yeah. I go back to what you just said about how maybe it's better if they have to go this way that they just don't know about it. And I'm going to make the film reference. Everyone has been waiting for on this podcast to Ron Howard's 1994 film, Apollo 13, uh, (laughs) when the re-entry crew were coming in shallow on their re-entry vector, and it's because they didn't have enough moon rocks or any moon rocks because they never landed on the moon, so their weight was off a little bit. And Ed Harris down at Houston's command center was like, is there anything we can do about it? They're like, nope. And it's like, well, we're not going to tell the crew then because it just won't help things further. So maybe things go better for the Fellowship if they don't know a giant fire and Shadow Demon is just, you know, a few feet away at some point. But um, I think that point's taken. I think you can read either of the choices or either of the mediums as a big dick Gandalf move. And not like (laughs) big dick as a positive, but (laughs) as in it was a really dick move by Gandalf. (laughs) And this is the thing. If there is, through all of these like films and all of these books, if there is possibly a least charitable reading for anything Gandalf does, I will be the one. (laughs) to take it so like don't worry everybody like if you really want to find yourself sick to death of someone just being needlessly harsh on Gandalf I will carry that burden for you and I will carry you if nothing else but I do think you know Gandalf is generally supposed to just be a very lovable grandfatherly like figure maybe a little more detached when he's Gandalf the White, but him and especially Ian McKellen's presence is supposed to be a comforting one. Um, I think you're supposed to feel safer with Gandalf on screen, which will, you know, actually dovetail into the next couple episodes What and what happens when he is not there. But one last thing, and again, it's Gandalf-related, is that in the books, he is the one who uh, eventually figures out the riddle to the door after much... Uh, you know, thinking or pondering about it, pondering the orb of this riddle. (laughs) Um, What's it called? But in the films, it is given to Frodo, which I think is just a smart move just to give Frodo a little more character work to show that he's cleverer and more than just some asshole who constantly gets stabbed throughout (laughs) these movies. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. 
Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and the other projects I've been working on. And Manuclear Bomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting on Twitter. And if you want me to maybe try and translate your name into one of the various Tolkien languages, come hit me up and I will gladly do that for you. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.